0: Hello and welcome to Employment Law Legends, Episode 1, Employment Law Reborn, West Coast Hotel vs. Parish. My name is Paul Rinnan. I am an employment and labor law attorney with the law firm of Ogletree Deacons in Houston, Texas. This is a new podcast series focused on revisiting the landmark cases which have forged modern employment law. The concept is simple. Every episode, we are going to review a new employment law case. We will study the legal principles at stake, and then we will discuss how the case has defined employment rights and obligations in the workplace. You may ask, why return to these cases at all? Well, employment law is dynamic and complex. It is sometimes easy to get bogged down in abstract legal summaries. Taking a step back to review important cases from time to time offers a chance to gain a better understanding of the broader fundamentals underlying employment law. It also provides different insights into effective legal strategies than what you could learn from studying a series of cases in less detail. The employment law cases we will review offer fascinating legal battles filled with drama and interesting attorneys, judges, and parties. Taking time to study these cases is not only enjoyable, it may provide a deeper understanding of our world and ourselves. In today's pilot episode, I want to return to one of the most legendary employment law cases of all time, West Coast Hotel v. Parrish. Without this case in 1937, employment law as we know it would simply not exist. What began as a simple wage dispute of $216.19 between Elsie Parrish and her employer, the Cascadian Hotel, would end in a complete legal revolution that would change this country forever. For as important as the case turned out to be, there is very little known about Elsie Parrish. Most scholarship focuses on the titanic political events which surrounded her case, rather than Miss Parrish herself. This is unfortunate, because she was a remarkable woman, and deserves more than just a few pages in a legal opinion. The case begins in Wenatchee. If you have never heard of it, it is a small town in central Washington. In the 1930s, the town had about 11,000 residents. The town is near the Columbia River and the Cascade Mountain Range. It is a beautiful recreational area, famous for its rolling seas of apple orchards and scenic valleys. Elsie Lee, soon to be known as Elsie Parrish, was born in 1899. She moved to Washington in 1930 from Kansas after the Great Depression began. By the time Miss Parrish moved, she had divorced her first husband, She married him young, at about 15, and had six children by this time. She was also a grandmother. To make ends meet and support her large family, she took a job as a part-time chambermaid at the Cascadian Hotel in Wenatchee in 1933. She was about 34 years old at this time. The Cascadian Hotel was not your sleepy Motel 6. Owned by the West Coast Hotel Company, it cost $500,000 to build and was 11 stories high. It was the tallest building in town. Designed with vertical and rectangular architecture in an art modern style, it held 133 guest rooms and several lobbies. It also hosted a restaurant, bar room, pharmacy, cleaners, barbershop, and apple shop. The Cascadian Hotel had everything, and it quickly developed into an important business and cultural center in Wenatchee. As a chambermaid for the Cascadian Hotel, Miss Parrish's job duties required cleaning toilets, mopping, sweeping rugs, and other grueling physical labor. Miss Parrish initially received 22 and a half cents per hour and was provided lunch by the hotel. She later received a raise to 25 cents per hour but lost the company provided lunch. Although Miss Parrish was probably glad to have the job, she thought she was being bilked. Since 1913, in a wave of progressive era legislation, Washington had passed a minimum wage law to protect women and minors from inadequate wages and unsanitary conditions. A Washington State Industrial Welfare Commission was established to determine the appropriate minimum wage rate, and it determined that chambermaids should be paid $14.50 a week. However, even if Miss Parrish worked a 50-hour week, she would still only earn about $12.50, well below the mandated minimum. In 1934, Miss Parrish married her second husband, Ernest Parrish, and assumed his name. She also became a full-time employee of the Cascadian Hotel to earn more money for her family. However, on May 11, 1935, she was discharged from the Cascadian Hotel. Miss Parrish immediately requested to be paid $216.19, the difference between what she was owed under the Washington minimum wage law and what she had been paid by the hotel. The hotel's manager, Ray Clark, Offered her a measly $17 to settle the case. Miss Parrish flatly refused this money and left. If Mr. Clark thought he had seen the last of Miss Parrish, he was sorely mistaken. Miss Parrish marched over to her local Justice of the Peace, Charles Burham Connor, and asked for his assistance. While he agreed to take her case pro bono and filed it on June 10, 1935, he probably thought the cause was hopeless. The United States Supreme Court had already ruled against them. Twelve years before, in 1923, the Supreme Court reviewed a similar law in the case Atkins v. Children's Hospital. The District of Columbia had tried creating a minimum wage for women and children to cut down on sweatshops. The Supreme Court thought the law violated the constitutional right to contract. Although the court noted there was no such thing as absolute freedom of contract, Infringing the contract rights between two parties could only be justified by the existence of exceptional circumstances. No exceptional circumstances were present in the case, and the minimum wage law was found an unreasonable and arbitrary interference with the right of contract. After Atkins, the Supreme Court upheld the holding on multiple occasions, and there was little to no likelihood it was ever going to be overturned. Elsie Parrish's minimum wage statute was null and void. Now, there is always a little confusion about why the Supreme Court found a right to contract in the Constitution. After all, these words are not expressly written into the text. People wonder whether the justices were just trying to make it up out of whole cloth. This is not entirely correct. The 14th Amendment of the Constitution states that "...no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law." The term liberty is never directly defined, and it must mean something, right? Otherwise, why put the term in there? Well, starting in 1897, the Supreme Court reviewed the meaning of this provision and unanimously discovered that the word liberty also included the liberty to enter into all contracts which may be proper, necessary, and essential. From that point on, the right to contract became a central tenet of constitutional law and was used to strike down a host of state and federal legislation aimed at improving working conditions. In the most famous case from 1905, Lochner v. New York, a majority of five justices held unconstitutional a New York law requiring bakers to work less than 10 hours a day and 60 hours a week. The court thought the law interfered with the baker's rights to contract the terms of their employment. Justice Holmes, dissenting from the liberal wing of the court, denounced its decision in the strongest terms. He stated the constitution was never intended to embody a particular economic theory, whether of paternalism or laissez-faire economic ideology. However, the concept stuck and was treated as axiomatic by the courts for the next generation. Lochner was just the tip of the iceberg. Between 1899 and 1937, the Supreme Court held 159 statutes unconstitutional under the due process and equal protection provisions of the Constitution. All kinds of laws were struck down for one reason or another, including federal statutes regulating child labor, prohibitions against yellow dog contracts, regulations for various industries. The court was striking everything down. The Roaring Twenties were marked by a court decidedly against any state or federal supervision of commerce and industry of any kind. But then, the Great Depression hit in 1929 and things spiraled out of control. 40% of the paper value of common stock was wiped out. 15 million people were out of work. Banks began to fail. I mean, things got so bad, farmers threatened to stop growing food because prices were so depressed. Unemployment in the United States climbed to a staggering 25%. In contrast, during the Great Recession which began in 2007, unemployment only reached as high as 10%. Now, the people look for someone to save them from this cataclysm, and in 1932, with the promise of a new deal for America, Franklin Roosevelt was elected president in a landslide election to deal with the crisis, and won 42 out of 50 states. Congress and the White House immediately began a whirlwind of social legislation that has come to be called the Hundred Days War. Things moved very rapidly from this point. Many of the reforms that were passed were hastily drawn. Legislation was sometimes passed with less than an hour of debate, sometimes with a simple shout rather than a roll call vote. The changes were so rapid that Roosevelt faced strong opposition from the judiciary immediately after he was elected. From 1920 to 1932, Roosevelt's three Republican predecessors had appointed six Supreme Court justices, two-thirds of the Court of Appeals, and nearly three-fourths of the district court bench. The judiciary, then, had been appointed by mostly Republicans by the time he took office. The foremost conservative justices on the Supreme Court were Justices Pierce Butler, James McReynolds, George Sutherland, and Willis Vandevanter. Due to their opposition to the New Deal, they were nicknamed by the press as the Four Horsemen. This was a reference to Chapter 6 of the New Testament's Book of Revelation, whose four horsemen were death, famine, pestilence, and war. The four justices would often ride together to the Supreme Court to refine their arguments and coordinate their case strategies. So this name, the Four Horsemen, while it was hyperbole and pretty unfair to the judges, was actually pretty descriptive to how they operated on a daily basis. Now, the Four Horsemen were opposed by three liberal justices known as the Three Musketeers, Justice Louis Brandeis, Justice Benjamin Cardozo, and Justice Harlan Stone. In the middle were two other justices, Justice Owen Roberts, the youngest member of the Supreme Court, and Chief Justice Evan Hughes. Justice Roberts had been appointed to the Supreme Court in 1930 by Herbert Hoover and often joined the Four Horsemen giving them a 5-4 majority lead on the Supreme Court. You will want to remember the name of Justice Roberts because he is going to end up being absolutely critical to Elsie Parrish's case. But we'll learn about all that later. Now, the Supreme Court did not always split down ideological lines. Sometimes, the justices agreed that Franklin Roosevelt's plans were just too overreaching to proceed. On Black Monday, May 27, 1935, one month before Elsie Parrish... Filed her lawsuit against the Cascadian Hotel. The Supreme Court handed down a series of unanimous decisions striking down several key pieces of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. This included the National Industrial Recovery Act, a wide sweeping piece of legislation allowing the president to regulate wages and pricing. Even Brandeis, one of the most stalwart musketeers, had appeared to turn against the president and told one of his advisors This is the end of this business centralization. Go back and tell the president we are not going to allow him to centralize everything. It's come to an end. After Black Monday, the stock market dropped significantly. People began to fear the United States would be unable to take action to prevent further crisis. Criticism of the court intensified. The New York Daily News even lamented, We are thrown, tied, and branded by the great llamas of legalism on the Supreme Bench at Washington people were very angry and confused why the court would strike down these laws that seemed necessary at the time. It was in this climate that Elsie Parrish and her attorney, Charles Connor, appeared in the Chelan County Superior Court to argue their case for the enforcement of Washington's minimum wage law. For its defense, the Cascadian Hotel hired a distinguished attorney named Fred Crawlard after it received a summons in the case. Now, Fred Crawlard was a good choice, Not only was he the Wenatchee Chamber of Commerce's president, he had also played a part in the groundbreaking ceremony for the hotel and understood the hotel's business and its need to keep labor costs low. The first hearing in the case was in October 1935. It seemed like a fair one. The parties appeared in front of Judge William Parr. Now, Judge William Parr was a resourceful and well-respected member of the Wenatchee community. He was one of the town's earliest settlers, having relocated to Wenatchee from Kansas using the Great Northern Railway in 1892. He had started his career as a barber, but after studying law in his spare time, slowly moved up in the legal community with grit and American determination. According to a letter Mr. Crawlard wrote to his son, Judge Parr allowed Crawlard to argue for two and a half hours at Miss Parrish's trial. Ultimately, Judge Parr found for the hotel and determined that the Supreme Court's Atkins case applied to the Washington's minimum wage statute. Because the minimum wage law unreasonably interfered with the party's right to contract wages, the statute was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. Therefore, Miss Parrish was not owed any additional amount of money except the balance of wages she had agreed to as part of the contractual agreement, $17. Completely undeterred, Elsie Parrish's attorney filed a motion for a new trial. It was summarily denied. The court then granted final judgment to the Cascadian Hotel in November 1935. Elsie Parrish then appealed that decision to the Supreme Court of Washington. The Cascadian Hotel's attorney, Fred Crawlard, was not too concerned by this new appeal. He was absolutely convinced that Atkins was controlling precedent and that Washington's Supreme Court would side with Judge Parr's decision. I mean, why wouldn't the court side with Judge Parr? Judges are supposed to follow legal precedent, right? However, on April 2, 1936, in a scathing reversal, the Washington Supreme Court flatly rejected Judge Parr's reasoning, declaring it was not bound by the United States Supreme Court's decision. Instead, it noted that the Washington legislature had made valid use of its police power to limit the freedom of contract between the employer and employee. It was not the court's duty to overturn the legislature simply because it did not agree with the legislature's reasoning or economic views. The Washington Supreme Court also distinguished Atkins by stating the case involved an act of Congress and the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, not the 14th. However, this was largely a distinction without a difference. The Washington Supreme Court also noted several cases held states had a right to interfere in the contracts of private parties when there was inequality in bargaining power and where it involved a public purpose, as was the case with employee wages. At one point, Fred Crawlard pressed the judge who wrote the opinion why he was failing to follow the Supreme Court's precedent. It was clear Atkins should be upheld. The judge, though, simply looked at him and replied, well, let's let the Supreme Court say it one more time. Fred Crawlard was obviously crushed by all this. Elsie Parrish and Charles Connor, on the other hand, were astonished. With this landmark reversal, their case would live another day. Furthermore, with Washington State behind them, they had an army of state lawyers and politicians at their back. They could really win here. But then, the worst thing imaginable happened. On June 1, 1936, in another case, Moorhead versus Topaldo, the United States Supreme Court handed down a 5-4 ruling, which found that a nearly identical New York minimum wage law was unconstitutional. The four horsemen had joined with the swing vote conservative, Justice Owen Roberts, to strike down the law. Now, this case did not involve an act of Congress like Atkins. It did not involve the Fifth Amendment. It involved a direct state minimum wage law and the Fourteenth Amendment. The court had extended the holding of Atkins and found there was no meaningful difference between an act of Congress and the state. If anyone was unsure about the scope of the decision, Justice Butler made it perfectly clear, stating in no uncertain terms, the state is without power by any form of legislation to prohibit, change, or nullify contracts between employers and women working as to the amount of the wages they are to be paid. End of story. Elsie Parrish's claims were legally dead. Now, the Supreme Court's decision in Topaldo was not unexpected, given their previous rulings, but it went over like a lead balloon. The opinion denied all government, state or federal, the right to regulate working conditions. Only 10 of 344 newspaper editorials supported it. Even ex-president Herbert Hoover expressed confusion about the decision and said, something should be done to give back to the states the powers they thought they already had. There was a general feeling that the Supreme Court may have overstepped. At this point, the conservatives on the Supreme Court were feeling more self-confident. Roosevelt was up for re-election in 1936 and faced Republican Alf Landon. Polling seemed to be favoring the Republicans at the time. The Literary Digest, a popular weekly magazine, predicted Landon would win in a landslide with 57% of the popular vote. I mean... Who does this Roosevelt guy think he is? There is no way he can win another election, right? He'll be gone by spring. However, the polls would turn out to be fatally flawed. The election of 1936 was a political earthquake, an even bigger landslide for Roosevelt than 1932. I really cannot overstate this. Roosevelt took nearly 61% of the popular vote. He won 48% out of 50 states this time, only failing to win Maine and Vermont. It was the greatest electoral victory since 1820. Elsie Parrish filed her legal brief and appellate arguments with the Supreme Court six days after this election. Although she must have felt some level of confidence riding on the tsunami that was Roosevelt's victory, Atkins and DePauldo still appeared as an insurmountable wall. Parrish's attorney made a decision not to challenge Atkins outright. This was probably a good decision at the time, because the likelihood of changing the justices' minds five months after Topaldo was decided was just not going to happen, at least in normal times. Instead, Elsie's attorneys argued their case was not in conflict with Atkins. Justice Roberts, the swing vote, had previously held in another case, Nebbia v. New York, that states had the power to regulate commodity prices in industries for dairy farmers under certain conditions. If the state could regulate the price of milk products, then why couldn't it regulate the price of labor? Parrish insisted the Washington minimum wage law did not operate in an unreasonable manner and was properly passed with the state's police power. She also tried to distinguish her case from Topaldo by stating that the highest court in her state had approved the law while the New York statute had been struck down by its highest court. This argument was not likely to gain much traction, however, because the Supreme Court had already determined it was the final say on constitutional matters, not state courts. The Cascadian Hotel's brief did what you would expect. It pounded the law on the table again and again. This was not a new question before the court, but one that had been decided numerous times before. Why change it? The court and Judge Roberts should simply reaffirm their previous rulings and uphold the precedent set down a few months before. The court held oral arguments in the case, and Elsie Parrish headed toward her final reckoning. Then, on February 5, 1937, Roosevelt dropped a complete bombshell. In a special message to Congress, he proposed a remodeling of the federal judiciary. Instead of having nine justices, he proposed it should be increased to a modest 15. It's unclear when exactly Roosevelt determined he needed to pack the court, but he had clearly grown frustrated with the court striking down his signature New Deal legislation, including the National Industrial Recovery Act on Black Monday. Furthermore, he thought the lower federal courts were running amuck. In 1935 and 1936 alone, these courts had issued 1,600 injunctions against various federal laws, Now, several key pieces of legislation were also running through the courts, including his Social Security Act and the National Labor Relations Act, which would regulate unionization. Roosevelt felt that he had to act quickly, or his entire administration would be undone. The language of Roosevelt's court-packing plan was complex and very specific. The bill contained a provision allowing Roosevelt to nominate one additional Supreme Court justice for each sitting justice who had served 10 years and had not retired within six months following his 70th birthday. It just so happened that six justices currently met that description. Ironically, the plan had come from one of the four horsemen, Justice McReynolds, over 20 years before when he was an attorney general for Woodrow Wilson. Roosevelt relished the idea of hoisting the horseman by his own petard and using McReynolds' own bill and idea against him. Roosevelt declared, I kid you not, that this was an answer to a maiden's prayer and decided to just roll with the idea. In this instance, though, Roosevelt was probably too clever for his own good. His initial arguments for why the bill should be passed completely sidestepped the main purpose of the bill, to eliminate ideological judges as a force on the court. Instead, Roosevelt concocted several elaborate pretexts involving the age and inefficiencies of the court. Roosevelt argued something like this. Oh my goodness, just look at this federal caseload. It's triple, don't you see? Cases are taking far too long to resolve. We need to decongest the calendars of these poor judges. And by the way, have you seen how old some of these judges are because of their lifetime appointments? While some remain energetic, many are sadly unable to perceive their own infirmities. We just need to push them along a little bit. Oh." And by the way, this isn't even my bill. It's Justice McReynolds. No one believed Roosevelt. Reaction to the court packing plan was mixed, and even Democrats took issue with Roosevelt focusing on age. After all, one of the three musketeers, Justice Brandeis, was over 72. I mean, he was born before the Civil War. He wasn't going senile, right? When Justice Brandeis learned of the court packing announcement, he informed the president he had made a grave mistake and felt sorry for him. The plan to increase the court from 9 to 15 justices was also just excessive. No one could understand why Roosevelt refused to bend on this point. But for Roosevelt, it was 15 or bust. And I don't think he was wrong about the numbers he needed. He was already at a four-vote deficit with the horsemen. Justice Roberts and Justice Hughes were also unreliable. That's six down now. Furthermore, he had offered one of the justice seats to the Senate Majority Leader, Joe Robinson, to help him pass the bill. He believed Robinson was just as conservative and unreliable as Justice Hughes or Roberts. To overcome this group of now seven unreliable judges, he needed the three musketeers and at least five others to break any tie at 8-7. If he could not get the 15 justices, it was all for naught, and he could end up politically isolated with a packed court which wouldn't enforce the New Deal. The president just pressed on. Elsie Parrish also awaited her fate. The final decision arrived on March 29, 1937. It was the Easter season. The new Supreme Court building had just been completed the year before and nearly 12,000 people, including children holding Easter baskets, gathered near its steps to learn whether minimum wage laws across the country would survive. 4,000 visitors had already crowded into the Supreme Court building. One of the four horsemen got up to read an opinion, but it turned out it was just another case. The crowds exhaled and were forced to anxiously wait. Then Chief Justice Hughes rose to his feet and announced the decision. Justice Roberts had done the unthinkable. He had reversed himself from only a few months before. He had turned away from his vote into Paldo and had joined with Justice Hughes and the Three Musketeers to uphold Washington's minimum wage law. Chief Justice Hughes was jubilant by all of this. After reciting the basic facts of the case, he rejected the efforts of Parrish's attorneys to distinguish Atkins. This strategy was obviously futile from the beginning because Atkins had involved a woman employed by a hotel too. Nevertheless, Atkins and its progeny, Paldo needed to be completely re-examined in light of supervening economic conditions. Chief Justice Hughes asked point-blank, What is this freedom of contract? The Constitution does not speak of freedom of contract. Instead, it only speaks of the deprivation of liberty without due process of law. He went on, The decision in the Atkins case was a departure from the true application of the principles governing the regulation by the state of the relation of employer and employed. The court had used too strict of a standard of review previously. Instead, the court should have used a more lax standard, like the one applied in the Nebbia case dealing with the minimum price for milk, which had been cited by Ms. Parrish. Minimum wage laws adopted by legislatures needed to only have a reasonable relationship to a proper legislative purpose and not be arbitrary or discriminatory. That was it. In this case, the Washington legislature had determined women employees were in a relatively weak bargaining position and were subject to abusive payment practices by their employers, and adopted a minimum wage law to counteract that problem. Justice Hughes asked What can be closer to the public interest than the health of women and their protecting from unscrupulous and overreaching employers? The community is not bound to provide what is, in effect, a subsidy for unconscionable employers. Atkins, Tipaldo, it was all overruled now. The very foundations of the Lochner era and the right to contract crumbled. And that wasn't the end of it, but only the start. That very day, which would soon go down in history as White Monday, the court also upheld a new farm mortgage law, reversing course from their earlier decision striking down a similar statute on Black Monday. More reform statutes were also upheld. Justice Roberts switched sides again two weeks later, and in a surprising 5-4 decision, upheld the National Labor Relations Act, guaranteeing the right to unionize and starting modern labor law as we know it. In May 1937, challenges to the Social Security Act were also swept aside. The next year, Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act. This created a national statute to enforce minimum wages and overtime pay, which remains with us to this day. The Supreme Court ceased striking down New Deal laws and further efforts to stall state socioeconomic legislation after this point. West Coast Hotel v. Parrish thus marks the beginning of the Constitutional Revolution of 1937. Within days of the opinion, the event was jokingly being labeled the switch in time that saved nine, due to Justice Roberts' sudden vote change and the belief he was cajoled into changing his voting behavior because of Roosevelt's threats to pack the court. Now, it is doubtful whether the president's threats had any effect on Justice Roberts, The vote on Parrish actually occurred nearly seven weeks before Roosevelt announced his judicial reorganization plan in February 1937. Instead, the simplest explanation is that Justice Roberts changed his mind about Topaldo after the landslide election of 1936. A review of his decision-making in the 1936 term shows Roberts shifted sharply to the left. Roberts agreed with the unanimous musketeer bloc in 37% of cases in the 1933 term. But this agreement ballooned to an astounding 73% of cases in the 1936 term. Something had definitely changed. He had left the door open in Nebbia that the court should take a lighter standard of review for legislation of public importance. He may have simply changed his mind about what review standard to apply for economic legislation under pressure from Chief Justice Hughes. Unfortunately for historians, the truth may never be completely revealed because Justice Roberts burned his legal papers and manuscripts. That's right, he literally lit them on fire and burned them into ashes. This decision has made deciphering his opinions more difficult and only fueled more conspiracy theories about his actions. Roosevelt's court packing plan ultimately collapsed and left the nine-justice Supreme Court intact. There are many reasons that this happened. The court's dramatic shift after Parrish eroded the urgency for a quick remedy. The Senate Judiciary Committee voted on six variations of the president's bill, but it failed each time 10 to 8. The president became desperate to get something passed and offered a compromise. One justice for each member older than 75 and an appointment once per year. He told Senate Majority Leader Joe Robinson, still aspiring to become a justice himself, that if he wanted to be made a bride... There must also be bridesmaids, and at least four of them. Joe Robinson worked tirelessly to help pass the new bill throughout the summer and to secure his own place in Supreme Court history. Unfortunately for Robinson, however, he overworked himself, and his friends began to worry his unrelenting ambition to pass the bill would ultimately destroy his health. And it did just that. During an unprecedented heat wave in July 1937, Just as the Supreme Court bill and his own seat were within his grasp, he was struck down by a fatal heart attack. A housekeeper found the poor Senate Majority Leader lying dead in his pajamas on his apartment floor. Political support evaporated overnight, and the court-packing plan died with Robinson. Although the court-packing plan would turn out to be one of Roosevelt's greatest legislative defeats, he did not need the plan after all. Roosevelt was ultimately able to gain a more favorable court with the scythe of time. One of the horsemen, Justice Vandeventer, retired from the court on May 18, 1937. Unburdened by the need to name Robinson to the Supreme Court, Roosevelt nominated Hugo Black to replace him. Justice Sutherland retired next. He was replaced in 1938 by Stanley Reed. With these two replacements and the Three Musketeers, a liberal majority was now secured. And things only got better for Roosevelt. By the end of his presidency, Roosevelt was able to nominate eight of the nine seats on the Supreme Court. Ironically, only Justice Roberts was left as the last of the old Republican guard on the bench. And what happened to Miss Parrish? I can assure you, after her case concluded, Elsie Parrish finally received her $216.19 She returned home as a local legend. The Wenatchee Daily World, which once thought her claims were doomed, now hailed her in a headline as a minimum wage Joan of Arc. That's right, her own town newspaper was comparing her to the heroic 15th century Maid of Orleans who fought against the English. While this may be overstating things a bit, such a headline reflects a general recognition Miss Parrish's struggle and ultimate triumph over the Four Horsemen had been truly miraculous. Miss Parrish expressed her satisfaction that now it was possible for the nation's millions of hard-working women to receive just payment for the labor that they do. She remained humble, however. She worried her fame would hurt her employment opportunities. She went on to live a long and full life, well after many of the attorneys and judges in her case passed away. She moved to Montana and then to California, where she was surrounded by her family and where she faded into private life. In 1972, she was tracked down for an interview. She told the reporter she thought nobody paid much attention at the time, but expressed her satisfaction at having accomplished something of historical significance. West Coast Hotel versus Parish remains with all of us today, and people certainly have paid attention to it. Without the jurisprudential changes in Parrish, much of our employment laws relating to wages, leave time, work hours, safety, and unions would simply not exist the right of contract would challenge all of it. Parrish made it possible for the legislature and the courts to regulate the employer-employee relationship in ways never thought possible before. It is a truly legendary case. It tested the Supreme Court in ways not encountered since the birth of the Republic. In its own way, it shows that even relatively small employment disputes over wages can change the heart of the nation. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next time, we will return to another legendary case which has defined harassment claims in the workplace, Meritor Savings Bank v. Vinson. I will see you then.